welcome to the Energy Talk podcast, where we tell stories about energy transition in the global south. My name is Olubumi Olajide. On this episode, the sixth in our series on distributed energy for people and the planet, we're going to be diving into the role of cooling and heat stress in the global south, focusing primarily on India. We've now reached the tail end of the series with two episodes to go. This series has been produced in collaboration with the Global SDG 7 Hubs and the Energy Action Project, ENACT. Now, as always, before I hand over to the host of this episode, Marilyn Smith, I ask that you subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and also recommend the episode to a friend or colleague if you do find value. Now, over to Marilyn Smith to introduce our guest and tell us more about the role of cooling, climate and energy in India. As the world moves through the transition seasons of fall in the north and spring in the south, many Europeans and North Americans are still struggling to cope with what was a summer of climate trauma. New Yorkers coughed their way through July and August in the smoke from massive forest fires burning thousands of kilometers away in Canada. With summers normally comfortable and home air conditioning still rare, Europeans working remotely kept shutters closed and shades down to avoid heat gain when September delivered temperatures of 35 to 40 degrees Celsius. Zeke Hausfather of the Berkeley Earth Climate Data Project was quoted in media saying, September was, in my professional opinion as a climate scientist, absolutely gobsmockingly bananas. But if you're a northerner who has never traveled near the equator, it's fair to say that you don't yet really know extreme heat. In total, 22 countries have now recorded temperatures above 50 Celsius, or 123 Fahrenheit, with many of these spikes falling in the past few years. Now consider that, instead of living in a 100-year-old building with thick stone walls, your home has been cobbled together with scraps collected from construction sites and garbage bins, thin plastic or wooden walls, and sheet metal or a tarp for a ceiling. Your whole family, six to 10 people, lives in 18 square meters. And you cook two to three times per day over an open fire, either inside or in a narrow alley right outside. And you have no electricity to even run a fan. While most of us are disgruntled by the discomfort of rising temperatures, for millions of poor people in urban slums and rural areas, climate change is already life-threatening. And so this podcast series now turns to two episodes on energy for cooling. This one focuses largely on understanding current conditions in which poor people live and work and how distributed renewables can, when customized to meet people's needs, deliver cost-effective solutions. First up, we hear from Nirmita Chandrasekhar, a licensed architect and senior program manager with Selco Foundation in India. In turn, Bijal Brambat brings perspectives from the Mahila Housing Trust, or MHT, a nonprofit that was selected as a Women Changemakers India Fellow by Womanity Foundation. 
In 2015, Bijal was also selected for the Global Fellowship Program on Social Innovation, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. Nermita, I mentioned that things are already difficult for poor people in hot regions. Can you start by telling us more? There are sort of a lot of researchers out there that talk about how by 2050, um, more than half of the global population is going to be under extreme heat stress, right? But a lot of the contexts in which Selka Foundation and MHD work in, the vulnerable groups of populations by 2030 will be hitting temperatures above 45 degrees on average. What we need to recognize largely is in a context like India, 90% of vulnerable communities build on their own. They self-build. Uh, all of the shelters, whether it's for housing, for livelihoods, tends to be built by themselves. And there is a big gap in not just access to resilient construction material, but thermally efficient, thermally insulated uh, materials, which people can adopt and build on their own. And there are very critical sort of behavioral changes associated with building and construction, not just in the usage of these spaces, which are also a big gap um, that we notice. I mentioned in my introduction that most of us Northerners don't really have much experience of extreme heat. But a very strong memory I have from a work trip to the Middle East is leaving an air-conditioned building to find it was 45 degrees Celsius. By midnight, I was tired of air-conditioned spaces and stepped out for some fresh air to find it was now very windy and only 38 degrees Celsius. In a very weird way, it reminded me of winter days from my childhood on the Canadian prairies, when a strong wind made minus 45 feel even colder. But I've always had the option of going indoors to get away from such extremes. Bijal, from what I understand, you work with people who have it worse when they head inside. Would you like to add anything to help listeners understand the context for this conversation? One of the things that we realized in India is that days are very hot. It's taking much longer to get cooler in the night. And the night actually becomes extremely unbearable. While the day goes off, you cannot really even rest yourselves in the night because cooling doesn't happen. Talking of our experiences working in urban areas and, uh, you know, especially where slums are. So most of our members actually live in slums where 11 people would live in something like a 18 square meter house, if I may say. That's the level of density. There is no ventilation. In terms of roofing, it's largely either tarpaulins or AC or teen sheets. So the temperature inside the house or the workplace is at least 5 to 7 degrees higher than it is actually outside. So that's a big, big issue. So it's not only your livelihoods, but also your your lives and your health and well-being are impacted very greatly in some of the researches that we have done. It isn't difficult to imagine various health impacts of overcrowding in overheated spaces. In what other ways are people already being seriously affected by rising temperatures? Nurmita, maybe we'll come back to you first. Some of the impacts that we see that heat has on them 
to begin with is on productive hours. So whether number of hours in a day or number of months in a year, you see a complete drop in production levels and productivity within communities itself, within individuals. There is also a lot of safety and fire hazards associated with heat, which is sometimes combined with built environment can result in occupational hazards that are very unique to these communities that we're working with. We work with communities across different kinds of livelihoods, whether they are sort of farmers running agro-processing centers or communities running animal husbandry programs. A large part of the work is with Mahila Housing Trust on urban and formal communities and looking at smaller micro-businesses where communities are basically running small enterprises on their own. And there is not much reported or said about how heat impacts Um, their lives and livelihoods at large. Some of the examples of these could be your small potters, blacksmiths, home-based entrepreneurs, running provisional stores and petty shops. And a lot of the times, because of their socioeconomic conditions, they're not able to adopt a lot of the heat relief or resilient measures. There is also tends to be vast amount of drudgery and fatigue associated to livelihoods. And that when combined with heat, tends to get even more worse. How much work uh, or the ability of one person to do work uh, is completely affected. In contexts where communities are working within sort of factory XYZ type situations, you see large amounts of absenteeism and retention of community members itself in that context. But the large piece which we are you know, trying to sort of develop methodologies for studies are to look at how it affects communities on a physiological and a mental level. Because there have been sort of uh, records in some of the work that we have been doing where you see a lot of substance use uh, related to extreme heat conditions, kidney failure, cardiac function, uh, you know, getting disrupted. Uh, people have issues with asthma because heat combined with air pollution tends to also have very compound impacts on communities and drives up medical bills for communities again. And what we also observe is it's different for people of different genders, of different age groups. Vijal, MHT is based in Gujarat, one of the poorest states in India. And I know you work closely with women. What aspects of the cooling challenge are specific to them? We have realized that a lot of the women that we work with are also home-based workers. So they basically use their home as a workplace. They are either making kites in the house or rolling Indian cigarettes or processing food at home. They have mentioned that there is a two-third reduction in their productivity when the season is hot. Their electricity expenses, if they do have access to electricity, almost double. And expenses on well-being like uh, usage of cold rings or usage of cooling powder, etc. That also increases quite a lot. Especially for women members, there are other issues like it's very tough when uh, they are having their menstrual periods. Also because there are increased cases of heat strokes and dehydration, uh, the dual care burden for women increases. And as a result, their cognitive burden also increases because of excess heat. So it's not only lives or livelihoods, but also the cognitive burden increasing, especially in the case of women. In one of the earlier episodes of this podcast series, we spoke about the need to truly understand the aspirations of these poor communities. What do you hear from the women you engage with? 
one thing that they are very clear on is that, that they don't want their children to lead the kind of lives that they have led. And, you know, when we say that climate change, the impact are already, we are seeing the impacts, but the harshest impact are yet to come. They, it's that they then really get ready to invest because they are already poor. Their pockets are really stretched. And I think the highest priority is probably surviving day to day or their children's education and such and not investments on cooling or energy. So I think we probably take a very long term and a patient approach where we start from explaining what climate change is through gamification, through simple techniques. And once their vulnerability in terms of heat is assessed, we start showing them the energy audits and working out the return on investment. So how does MHT engage with these women in meaningful ways? We actually train our poor women leaders to undertake energy audits. So when slums are getting upgraded or the housing upgradation, poor women would go out and conduct energy audits and they would then demonstrate how uh, energy consumption probably using some of the materials that's in vogue in the market would increase and uh, therefore result into uh, excess expenditure uh, for poor households, which would be really sort of very crucial somehow to take them back into the vicious cycle of poverty. And once it is scientifically demonstrated through watt meters and other stuff, I think women do understand the principles of uh, energy efficiency. And if they move to investing into ventilation or investing into cool roofs or also start looking at probably, you know, passive design that we may have suggested. I think one of the things we increasingly should be very scientifically explained to them is that, you know, if they are interested in investing in alternative materials, which uh, promotes energy efficiency, then how would the return on their investment come in? In contrast to what Vijal just described, I'm aware that Selco Foundation often works in urban slums. What is different in that context, Numita? Whether it's remoteness or density in urban contexts, uh, all of these things tend to play a very nuanced role in how communities make decisions in accessing cooling. And I feel like there's a lot of sort of in- inputs that governments and other stakeholders can bring in and enabling sort of a very conducive ecosystem for communities to be able to act. Because if I live in urban Bangalore, I can go down and buy a cooler and air conditioner or, you know, insulate my home. Everything is sort of at my doorstep. But when you, the more remote you get in a context like India, where there are maybe no roadways, there are sort of high cost of transactions just to access and purchase a material itself. How do you look at distribution and decentralization of uh, materials coming in? And the large part of our work is looking at energy poverty and strengthening renewable energy access. for A lot of these solutions that are available in the market are not necessarily customized for what communities need on the ground, for different kinds of climatic zones, for people with different socioeconomic backgrounds. A lot of the technologies are very redundant, uh, which is also very important to understand, which is needs to be replaced every year or twice a year at least. And there is also a big gap when it comes to inclusive financing for communities who want to access cooling itself, which I will maybe elaborate a little bit more in, um, later on. In your view, what is most needed in that context? 
Very simply, it is a human-centric and bottom-up approach to design. When you're looking at infrastructure and R&D in the space of built environments, we sort of follow a five-method approach, if I can call it that, uh, where one is that we need to ensure that there is equal participation from all stakeholders when it comes to designing. In the context of cooling, we've been sort of deploying a lot of roofing solutions for communities. And one big part of that was in the conversations with communities and individuals, you realize that it's not just the fact that you need to de- reduce temperature, but the roof has to be aspirational. It needs to be affordable. Where hence talking to many people sort of improves the quality of what the design outputs are at this stage. The second part is the fact that sustainability, whether climate or community focus needs to be uh, important. And when I say from the community perspective, it's saying that if I adopt a solution, my neighbor has to adopt the solution too. And I use it for a very long time. So making sure that it's durable, it's resilient is one part of sustainability and then the climate focus in the sense that I'm not generating waste. I'm not sort of emitting more than I need to uh, as part of the solution being sustainable itself. For us, the focus of design also is that it's not just functional, but you also need to make it culturally appropriate. It needs to be customized for different climate zones, for different kinds of groups of communities. Bijal, what about the contexts that MHT works in? How are the situations and needs the same or different to what Nirmita is describing? Urban areas are tougher because of lack of space. Probably other passive cooling aspects are very, very low. For example, forestry, urban forestry is very low because urban is all about development and infrastructure. So I think it's a triple whammy in the case of uh, poor women who we work with. I must say that we do work quite a lot on passive cooling, at least in the built environment. And we have been trying to look at how, uh, you know, the orientations of buildings and the kind of material which is used promotes cooling and therefore active cooling heats are reduced. A lot of it has also jointly evolved as a part of our work with SETCO. But we did realize that cooling is not only about making your built environment cool, but in urban areas where we are largely working, the infrastructure development and city development is also uh, something which could not move towards passive cooling. However much we do on the built environment level uh, probably will not suffice. So we've talked quite a lot about the various ways that heat stress is already making life much more difficult for the poorest people in the global south. Let's shift the focus to more in-depth discussion of solutions. Nirmita, would you like to go first? So I think I'd maybe like to talk about two initiatives that we are focusing a lot more of our efforts on. One is on improving quality of built environments, by which I mean largely looking at for different sectors and uh, communities that we engage with, whether it's healthcare or individuals uh, running homes and livelihoods, how do you sort of engage on designing guidelines and codes with the government for setting up of these infrastructures? Because a lot of the cooling gaps are because X amount of centers are uh, built in a manner that's not thermally insulated and hence climate resilient. 
So one piece of it is looking at just best practices and codes for new infrastructure. A large part of our infrastructure uh, work is also uh, routed around renovation and improvement of existing facilities, which then means how do you look at retrofits in existing facilities, working with community and financiers to be able to sort of access financing for better quality of built environments. So this could retrofit could be for your roofing to improve the quality of your windows, anything that sort of helps in uh, making sure that your built environment is conducive for that conditioning that you require, whether it's a delta cooling of, say, 4 to 10 degrees, then your air conditioner is working much more efficiently. The second initiative is working on active appliances itself. We've been partnering with um, early innovators as well as startups to look at uh, low energy consuming air conditioning systems, which largely means if I have to sort of cool my house or a large community health facility, then you have air conditioning systems that are not just sustainable for the climate, but are also on the operational costs of it, a lot more affordable for me to own and uh, build with. We've been working with uh, a few state governments to look at the first part, which is improving thermally comfortable built environments. This is specifically looking at health infrastructure at the village level. And while most of these states that we're working in right now, historically are not contexts which had heat stress, but they're seeing a lot more of cooling days in the recent past. And a lot of the efforts that we hear with that specific health department of the state has been to look at guidelines, codes, best practices, a training of tradespersons on the ground to ensure that, you know, the health centers are being built in a manner that is resilient, thermally comfortable and reduces the cooling needs. And we're talking about large numbers, right? Like 300 to 700 sort of facilities being set up, which is massive, massive construction infrastructure that we'll be seeing in a lot of states in India coming up. Numita brought up the point of working with governments to set up policy frameworks that stimulate action to make the built environment more energy efficient and more thermally comfortable, which is critical. But it takes a lot of time to construct new buildings, and the reality is that many old buildings are going to continue to be used for many years to come. In what ways has MHT been trying to tackle this challenge from other angles, Bijal? We have been trying to look at how cities can have heat action plans. And several cities have started making heat action plans in India. However, they are mostly limited to looking at early warning systems of heat and hospital readiness. We are trying to get cities to focus on uh, well vulnerable sections in terms of how the infrastructure and built environment is developed, how you can you know, revise the blue and green networks, not only to promote biodiversity, but also to ensure that the city remains generally cooler and therefore individual households or workplaces are even much cooler. So all these combined together. So we have been trying to actively work with uh, cities to look uh, and develop heat action plans as a part of which cooling strategies can be deployed, which could be actually reviving their blue networks in the city. I mean, India had many traditional structures. We had wells, we had what we now call step wells and other heritage structures which have become defunct once the pipe, uh, once the water has been supplied through pipes. And if those structures are actually revived, they would 
form a very important part of cooling the city and the informal settlements. Similarly, if urban forestry and greening is looked at as a part of reduction of heat in the cities, that would make big, big impact on the heat island uh, effect that the cities are having. You've each mentioned engaging with governments, whether local, state or national, in India to address the need for sustainable cooling. But the reality is that there are dozens of other countries in the global south that face similar challenges. And some of them are being criticized for talking big while not doing much. Who needs to be involved and what needs to be done to trigger a truly effective response? So what we have learned over here is that, yes, you have to be able to work with these government line departments to ensure that it's not just a report or a record or a document, but you're actually practicing these kinds of deployments on the ground also. We've been also at a global level working with the World Health Organization and with WMO to just recognize and report how heat stress has been impacting global south contexts like in India, especially for the vulnerable groups, right? And that initiative uh, from a top-down perspective, we'll be able to put down guidelines and regulations at a very large level for countries uh, to adopt best practices when it comes to uh, deploying infrastructure on the ground, especially focusing on thermal comfort and cooling, active and passive. Do you find, Bijal, that policymakers are willing to get on board? I just wanted to make one or two points, is that at the national level, there are three things, actually, that at the national level, we have uh, National Disaster Management Authority, which, which is promoting the heat action plans. And then we have the Ministry of Environment, which is actually promoting the national cooling plans. And so there is a heat action plan and there is a cooling plan and both of them may not be speaking to each other, whereas heat action or cooling probably could be sort of interlinked. It's a very interlinked phenomena. Just because there are two separate departments are being looked at differently. The only other aspect that probably a cooling plan would have would that be about the mechanized cooling through refrigeration, which the heat action plans may not actually include. But how do you really integrate them and have the different departments talking? And again, in terms of the way development happens is actually through the urban development or rural development plans. And unless and until these uh, cooling or heat action plans get integrated, I think the other thing that I want to point out that the heat action plans, many cities have had them since the National Disaster Management Authority of India has declared heat as a disaster. However, they are on paper. So there is not much action happening in cities where the concentration is merely on reaching, well, it's all about reaching water and managing your sewage and giving housing and managing waste. And that's what wraps up the energy of, of the CEOs of the city. And so to bring a climate or heat to the forefront is a big, big challenge. So how do you really do that? And how do you really activate the plants which are there for mainset? So how do you promote action? That's what we have been trying to do. One is that we are creating this group of poor women in the cities who start engaging with the city to ensure that whatever promises have been made in terms of heat action or cooling action are actually being 
implemented by the governments. We are also trying to see how their existing development plans can build in aspect of cooling or uh, greening so that the heat is reduced. So while we do not, because it would be very, very difficult to completely take away the focus from infrastructure development, but how can the infrastructure which is being developed be promoting cooling is something that we are trying to look at with smaller cities, especially because smaller cities in India don't really have a huge income differential. And they are the ones who do not have very high incomes and therefore very low technical capacities to be able to do this. So that's where we are concentrating right now. Across the diverse contexts you work in, what barriers do you encounter in relation to the uptake of cooling solutions? When already mentioned how energy consumption for cooling tends to become another sort of impact where there's a lot of out-of-pocket expenditure for cooling, for both for buying appliances and for energy that is associated with then powering those appliances um, and operational costs of you know managing and running all of these facilities. And the last piece, which is I think the biggest hindrance, um, is the adoption of inclusive financing, whether these are nationalized banks or regional banks or credit cooperatives, in all of our efforts, um, there is a lack of know-how on why is cooling important? How do you sort of finance uh, for this? A lot of our work with MHT is giving us a lot of insights on how do you guide other financiers to be able to look at financing for built environments or for cooling products and solutions. But there is a sort of big gap on adoption um, and incentivizations of these banks to be able to finance for energy efficiency and for cooling, which I feel like is something that we've been sort of actively looking at working on, where a lot of the conversations around business modeling, return on investments can, you know, really evidence of that can really support rolling out uh, and scaling up. A solution. So I think our efforts have been to do- document these processes of successes to be able to take it to other states and other countries to be able to scale up. Bijal, is MHT finding ways to tackle the finance barrier? We have been trying several things. We have been trying reduce interest rate loans. We have been trying part subsidies to get them to invest and therefore uh, change behavior. And so several Financial models uh, have been worked out and we are trying to work around those. But I think it's it's very important that you support them by working out the return on investments. And when the poor really do invest, you know, a very great factor is also the kind of trust that they have on organizations like us. And therefore, it becomes more burdensome on us to really vet uh, you know, the actors in the market and ensure that uh, the deal that the poor get, both in terms of financing and also in terms of the kind of technologies which are introduced, is really worthwhile. So I think it's a larger burden is there on institutions like MHT and Selco in terms of what we take to the poor and how we support them. Any last points you'd like to make, Nirmita? So. I think when we started our work in looking at, uh, at that point, architecture for the poor communities right, of the world. So a lot of our thought process were on what are the values that we need to sort of imbibe when it comes to looking at um, curating solutions around the built environments of communities. And a big part of it was dialogue around 
how do you bring access to designs to communities how do you democratize designs uh, for communities itself and this tends to then you know really help us understand that when we are designing solutions on the ground we need to be able to customize them and standardize them to a certain degree because otherwise the solutions are very generic and don't sort of fit for all so that largely is what we've been observing as an impact of heat on communities again when you're working with communities it needs to be aspirational so these tend to be very critical pieces of the puzzle because this ensures complete ownership adoption and utilization of the solutions that you're deploying on the ground and the last piece i mean we've been talking about it is affordability you and i can afford a certain kind of solution but are you able to sort of understand the cash flows of community look at the kind of financing and subsidization and incentives that they have accessible to and hence sort of design a product that is easy to be deployed on the ground and adopted and this tends to be what we sort of uh, talk about when we talk about democratizing design To grasp the scale of the challenge in bringing cooling solutions, whether passive or active, to poor people across the global south, you need to absorb just two statistics. Worldwide, about one in three people already live in slums. By 2050, it is estimated that two-thirds of the global population will live in urban areas. That means that as temperature rise, population density is likely to increase dramatically. And the risks linked to overcrowding in overheated spaces will multiply. A big thanks to Nirmita Chandra Shekhar of Selco Foundation and Bijald Brambat of Mahila Housing Trust for their insights into how well-planned cities and thermally efficient buildings can reduce demand for energy for cooling and how distributed renewables can then fill the gap. But it isn't only people that need cooling solutions. In our next episode, we're going to hear about passive and active cooling for everything from leafy greens in Ethiopia to the camel milk collected by nomads in India's vast deserts. Don't forget to check out past episodes of this podcast. Search for Distributed Renewals for People and the Planet on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about the Global SDG 7 Hubs, visit their website, www.globalsdg7hubs.org. And check back in with The Energy Talk in a couple of weeks for more on energy for cooling. For the Energy Action Project, in ACT, I'm Marilyn Smith.